0: What's up, ball Nation? It's Brandon Marcus from the Hoopball Clippers podcast. We're chatting about an exciting time in Clipperland with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George looking to lead the team to an NBA title. Tune in to hear guests ranging from TV voice Brian Seaman and radio voice Noah Eagle to various beat writers and team bloggers. Follow the podcast on Twitter, at Hoopball Clips, and follow me, at BDMarcus. Looking forward to having you tune in. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Wow, man. I mean, really wow. I know we got all of our bets right yesterday, or our leans, but wow. Wow, 15-point loss for the Clippers, and it all came apart after losing by 13, after losing by, what was it, six in the one before that. Wow, that blew me away, and I'm not a Clippers fan. I mean, you guys know that about me. I'm a Lakers guy, but I mean, I I also think that I have a, a, a pretty good pulse on how teams are faring, what they're doing, me—it's why we tend to do relatively well with our wagering. But man, alive! I did not see this this result coming. I guess I, we all should have. I—I I, I don't know. Even going into Game Seven yesterday, I thought, well, you know, Clippers now finally getting pushed a little bit; they'll be forced to put their their foot on the gas. And there was no there was no gas left in the tank. There was no fuel. That was mind-blowing, wasn't it? Well, don't worry, we'll break that down. We have no games today, so we have no betting to dive into on today's podcast, which means and I said this on Monday and then I ended up being totally wrong. I think we'll probably have fewer things to go over on today's show, but you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. We might end up in a in a deep dive on Paul George here in a little bit and you know we will be Tomorrow there is one game, and Friday there is one game, and we are now in the one-game-forever mode. One game a day until the conference finals are done, and then we get a game every other day once we hit the finals, which I, be- uh, I believe begin somewhere around the very end of the month. Where does that take us? Seven games with uh, Lakers Nuggets starting Friday, 18, 21, <laughs> The thirtieth, I guess, would be the last day, so the finals would probably start on the second or the third of October, right? <laughs> what the hell, year? What, what this calendar is off the wall. Um. Uh, hello, by the way. Well, good. Good morning, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am Dan Vespers. D a n b e s b r i s on Twitter. If you'd like to give me a follow, you can also just Google search Dan from Hoop Ball. Those of you that are tuning in for the first time, welcome to the show. I know there are not a ton of you at this time of year hunting for a fantasy basketball podcast, but should you be the type of person who's like, "Ooh, we this show's talking betting," we're Fantasy NBA today. Hold the fantasy these days, and uh, we'll just you know keep chugging along at this rate until something forces us to to change it up. I don't know what the hell is going on. This is this is a very weird time to be hosting a show called Fantasy NBA Today. That's not a DFS show. Uh, no DFS Today episode today, obviously, with no basketball games. Uh, there will be a Clippers podcast coming later today. Brandon has told me he tried to do one last night, and it was just it was too much. And honestly, I can't blame him. That is that was a that was a gut punch of epic proportions. I mean, that was that was crazy. Um, shout out, however, while we're talking about Clippers stuff here at the beginning of the show, shout out to Brandon and Justin Wilson, who had uh, just a brilliant show on, I think that was Sunday evening after the Clippers lost game six, that was far and away the most downloaded episode of the Hootball Clippers podcast ever. Like not close, like two times the size of any other show. That's wild. So well done, guys. Uh, you can follow Brandon at BD Marcus. We know he have had him on the podcast a few times. And then Hoopball Clips is the Twitter handle for that uh, for that show and for our Clippers coverage at Hoopball. I know, again, there will be another episode coming out here in just a little bit. Hoopball Clips, um, I mean, wonderful work by those guys. I know this is a gut punch of a morning for them, but definitely go check their podcast out. And hopefully you guys can subscribe and enjoy it as they roll and and look towards next year, which is uh, just a crazy thing to be talking about. And so let's just just go right into it. I got to start with Clippers-Denver, because that series is over and we'll loop back around. We're not going chronologically yesterday. Miami beat Boston in the early game. Late game, Clippers were favored by 7.5 with a total of 2.07.5. I had no feel on the side. I thought the Clippers would win the game, but I had no idea if they'd cover until we... We, we immediately left that alone. I figured we had a little bit of wiggle room on the total, slight lean to the under, since the previous game's total had a pace uh, of around, I think I said it was about 205, 206, something like that. Let's go back to that game on Sunday and, and double-check ourselves. Um, that game had a an expected pace of, the Clippers had an expected pace of about 104... And the Nuggets had an expected pace of about 101. Yeah, so it was like 205, 206. And so the total of 207 or 208 in yesterday's game, we had just the littlest bit of wiggle room on the under. And then the expectation that in a game seven, things would actually slow down further. And so maybe there was more like, instead of a point and a half or two points, maybe you were looking at more like five or six points. And so we did have an expected lean to the under. And then it went way under. Uh, it went way under because the Clippers played with no hustle and no heart outside, basically, of Pat Beverly, who was good in yesterday's game, and pretty much everybody else was a horrible. Montrezl Harrell actually wasn't awful on the offensive end. I know he's been getting clobbered for his defense, but you know, by all accounts, he was one of the few guys with any energy for the Clippers in yesterday's game, which you know they they to their credit they got a truckload of shots up. Because they didn't turn the ball over, the Nuggets turned the ball over twenty times and won the game by fifteen, which tells you really how awful the Clippers were on offense. I mean, that was that was mind-bendingly bad. The pace of yesterday's game actually, it, it, by all accounts, should have gone over the total. It actually was more like uh, like two thirteen, I think, was the expected pace of that ball game, and. Because the Clippers were so terrible and because the Nuggets had 20 turnovers, the both teams, the Nuggets were basically right on their number. Good shooting, bad uh, taking care of the basketball. The Clippers, good taking care of the basketball, but horrific shooting. Neither team got many free throws, so that also drove the total down. And then the Clippers shooting 38%. That was obviously your thing. So, you know, from a pace standpoint, I think we made the right decision to leave the game alone. From a game seven standpoint, you probably could have said, "Look, someone's going to run out of gas in this game or series," and then it ended up being the Clippers. So, yes, our our very small lean turned out to be right, which I want us to to sort of revel in the fact that it did. The total was 193, so it wasn't even really all that close. But from a speed of game standpoint, if this wasn't game seven and the game was played at this tempo, we probably would have lost the bet. Because the expected total was about 5 to 6 points above the actual line. 213 was the expected final from the way we're sort of running the numbers right now. And the the line was at 207 or 208, depending on where you were looking. So, that's why we left it alone. Because there simply wasn't enough wiggle room in the expected number. You know, 206 was what we were expecting based on the, the way the previous game had gone. And the line was 207, 208. That's 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 a coin flip. But because this game had an extra layer, meaning game seven, someone is going to just like dry heave on the court from being so tired that there's no way these guys overperform their expected numbers. Denver was right on they shot the ball extraordinarily well. They played like they had energy, namely Jamal Murray played like he had energy and they still couldn't really best their expected number. And then you had the Clippers, and this segues into uh, another probably relatively long discussion here on the show. But before we do that, I want to mention the lines we're quoting are always from my buddies over at mybookie.ag. I know that here on this pod, starting tomorrow, we're only going to have one game a day to break down from the NBA standpoint. But the guys over uh, at Hoopball Gaming are breaking down everything Every day, they have the NHL cart. They have the baseball cart. They have basketball. They do college football. They did a special football weekend show yesterday where they broke down both college and the NFL, including mid-majors. That's where there's a ton of money to be made because people aren't paying attention to this stuff. Those guys are doing a bang-up job. And so I'd love for you guys to check out Today in Sports Betting. That's the name of their podcast, Today in Sports Betting. And then roll on over to my bookie, Sign up for an account with promo code HOOPBALL. Again, initial deposit with a credit card is $45 minimum. You can use Bitcoin. I think you can drop in any amount you want if you're uh, into crypto. I don't understand how that works, but I do know a lot of people that do. And so you can open up an account with that as well. Again, it's mybookie.ag. Promo code HOOPBALL unlocks a 100% deposit match bonus. So they will give you free play of exactly what you deposit on your initial drop into the account if you put in 50 bucks they'll give you 50 bucks to play with you put in 100 they'll give you 100 that's up to a grand which is pretty sweet yes there are rollover requirements so if you were hoping to just open an account make one bet and then cash out you'd be wise not to use the promo uh i mean still put in the code because we need them to know that we sent you there but don't use the deposit match if you're hoping to cash out quickly if you're looking to play long term there's no reason not to use the deposit match because, yes, there are rollover requirements there, but it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're planning on making bets for the next year, then you're golden. So take the free money at that point. And, of course, if anything pops up again on there, uh, like that NFL wager where they were literally just giving you $50 for no reason, not promo money, that was real bucks, then we'll uh, we'll let you know about that here on this podcast. Make Make no mistake, we will not. Let that slip by. We didn't last time. It's a fantastic opportunity for all of us to just go make 50 bucks together. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the line from game one here in a little bit. I, I want to talk more about the Nuggets and the Clippers individually. First, let's talk about Denver. Because they're showing a level of resiliency that, you know, I can't remember a team that ha- had showed this level of toughness. And I don't think there's been one. That's probably why I don't remember it. Remember, they're still down Will Barton, who I think said he was still hoping to get back into the bubble and do some stuff, but I can't imagine that's happening anytime soon. They've shown a willingness to uh, to go now to Jeremy Grant in, a, in kind of a larger role, which is not... It's funny, you know, he's playing more minutes as a starter, but I don't know that it's necessarily good for him because he's with Paul Millsap, so that pushes him down to the small forward spot. Gary Harris is back in there. And then here in the playoffs, you know he's not going to be getting very many clean looks. And in this last series, he was stuck basically on Kawhi Leonard and Paul George pretty much the entire series. That's that's a rough, that's a tall order. I still like Jeremy Grant as one of our, I don't know, call him old man types, but I get it. He's not an old man. You can call him a sleeper if you want. I don't care. Uh, he's a guy we're looking at for fantasy for next year. But how about the Nuggets and just... The fortitude. Nikola Jokic, bad shooting game. He was, uh, honestly, probably was a little bit tired and went for 16 points, 22 rebounds, 13 assists, two steals, three blocks, and a perfect six of six at the free throw line. Yeah, he had five turnovers because they ran their entire offense through him. But, I mean, the dude's a monster. And the Lakers are going to have their hands full. They have better person. The Lakers have better personnel to deal with Jokic than the Clippers or the Jazz. I don't care. I know that you're like Rudy Gobert, two-time Defensive Player of the Year. Look, Brew has been on this show and he's said it a bunch of times, and maybe it's not sticking because I haven't repeated it enough. But Rudy Gobert is not the same guy he was a couple years ago. From a defensive standpoint, he's just not like he doesn't he doesn't move the same way anymore. I know he still had 1.9 blocks on the season, which you know is not all that far off from what he's done in previous years but he's not the same guy he's just not um so you know we can we can try to sugarcoat it and and call him the defensive player of the year but it's just not you know it's just not uh if you look at at and I want to make sure that we get the uh the numbers exactly right when we're talking about someone like Rudy Gobert. Um, you know, three years ago, he was averaging 2.6 blocks per game. He was down to 1.9 this year. Uh, a few years ago, um, he was at, where's our numbers there? Rebounding is about the same, uh, more defensive rebounding these days, largely because Derek Favors isn't there anymore. You know, offensively, his role hasn't really changed all that much. It's It's largely dunks. So the only metric we really have to go on is... His blocks and then the eye test and the eye test tells you he doesn't move the way he used to. Now, having him on Jokic was better than what the Clippers could throw at him, which, you know, not surprisingly, Jokic rebounded uh, a lot better <laughs> against the Clippers <laughs> than he did against the Jazz and passed better against the Clippers than he did against the Jazz because the Clips were trying to get the ball out of his hands. That didn't really work. That opened up other guys on the floor. The Jazz were just like, look, we're going to play you straight up. If you go and you score a bunch of points, we're okay with that, but we don't want you involving the other guys. Well, unfortunately, Jamal Murray got going in that series, and that ended up being more than enough. I think you probably see the Lakers do something more closely related. I'm sure they'll have different schemes that they look at, but something a bit more closely related to what the Jazz did with Jokic than what the Clippers did. I, you know, I know the Lakers... If you're like, but they, but with Harden in the last round, they they yanked the ball out of his hand. Well, the reason the Lakers did that with Harden is because, first of all, you know they could run two guys at him that were his height or bigger, and then scramble and recover because they were sort of pushing him away. With Jokic, they can get him the ball uh, at the top of the key, and he can see the whole floor. And if they run a double team at him, he'll kill you. There just won't be time to scramble back. He'll find someone cutting. Denver is more adept at sending guys towards the rim than the Rockets were. They're, most of their guys want to just hang out near the three-point line. So that's not really an option. And you saw what happened when the Clippers did that. Eventually, Denver just broke them down. They, they cleaned them out. Utah had the better plan, but they couldn't defend the other guys on the floor. And frankly, Utah just sort of wasn't good enough to take advantage of the fact that, at that time at least, Denver wasn't guarding anybody. Denver's defense has gotten better as the playoffs have gone along, and you can probably put some of that on Gary Harris, him kind of waking them up as a team defensively. So for the Nuggets, I mean, you have to give them just an absolute truckload of credit. They've now come back from two separate 3-1 deficits in the same playoffs. That's unbelievable fortitude and resiliency. They keep packing their bags like they're going home, and they keep hanging around. And to me, that was the difference in this series was just fortitude. We'll do some more X's and O's here during this breakdown, but on that Clippers side, and I mean, all right, so there are a combination of things. But God, there's so much stuff I want to talk about on the Clippers side, and I, so I'm I'm hesitant to even dive into it here because I want to make sure we finish our, our Nuggets discussion. So with Denver now, they're look at they look ahead at a Lakers team that that presents some very different issues than what the Clippers did. The Clippers were a, a pretty ISO-heavy team. They, they, you know, ball movement was not really their strongest suit, especially come playoff time. And, you know, that leads to low turnovers in general because it's a lot of ISO ball. But, you know, if the, if the shots aren't falling, which they weren't yesterday, Paul George couldn't throw one in the ocean, Kawhi couldn't throw one in the ocean, then they don't really have... They don't really have another way of of doing it. They're not. Montrez actually was probably their other option of getting someone near the rim and attacking a little bit. But, you know, his shortcomings sort of evened that out. The Lakers have a, a, a pretty different looking offense than the Clippers do. But there are things you can do with the Lakers on offense to slow them down. For one, you know, the Lakers are not going to have the same rebounding advantage they had in their last series against the Rockets. They they could miss and then just go get the misses and put them back in because Houston couldn't keep them off the glass. Lakers annihilated the Rockets on the boards in that series. And, the, you know, Lakers are going to be a good rebounding team pretty much regardless of who they play. But Denver is a far better rebounding team than Houston. And, frankly, uh, I would venture to say better than Portland as well Uh Although, you know, the Blazers at least had Nurkic, Whiteside. They had a couple of bigger dudes they could throw in there. The Lakers wore those dudes out as well. So that's what this this series is going to come down to, I think, is the Lakers don't really have a Jamal Murray stopper, if you want to call it that, the way the Clippers did. And Jamal had this giant game here in the clincher, so, you know, the Jamal Murray stoppers kind of ran out of gas a little bit as that series went along. As we've seen with Murray... He's sort of on or he's off for the most part. He's either going to get his or he's not going to get his. And I don't know that there's a ton that the Lakers are going to be trying to do about that other than just, you know, try to keep him from getting any easy looks. And if he just catches fire on jump shots, you sort of just have to go with it. And if he catches and if he goes totally nuts, then eventually you have to get the ball out of his hands. And, you know, maybe they run some doubles at him not that dissimilar from what they were doing with Harden, but I don't think that's the plan out of the shoot. I would think the plan out of the shoot for the Nuggets at least, is they've got to bring help f- against Anthony Davis. Because, you know, if you're the Lakers, you probably want Davis attacking Jokic in this series. Not because he's just going to obliterate him, because Jokic is fine, you know, he's not a shot-blocking center but he's a big dude and he can, he can use his body to keep people away from the bucket, but largely because Anthony Davis is wonderful at drawing fouls. And the way that Denver gets wiped out in this series is if Jokic is dealing with foul trouble, because then the Lakers could key in on just Jamal Murray. So you know, I think there's going to be some, there's going to be a lot of attacking for the Lakers. They're going to be trying to get downhill. They're going to be trying to get big guys into foul trouble, which, you know the Lakers are pretty damn good at that and Denver's going to have to be awfully careful not to commit silly ones early so you might see some easy buckets for LA early in the ball game where Jokic is just kind of and I'm betting he's being told like look if they're coming if LeBron's coming downhill at you and you're near the rim and there's not much you can do and you got like a 10% chance of affecting the shot just let him have it because we need you with you know four or five of your six fouls available in the second half So that way we can start to lock down a little bit. And if you're on the Lakers' side, you know, we're going to see more of the big men again. I don't think they're going to be playing the uh, AD Markeith Morris lineup right out of the gate. You'll probably see JaVale McGee to alter shots at the rim. You'll probably see Dwight Howard to deal with Mason Plumlee off the bench or, frankly, just to bang because there are big guys out there again. And, you know, that's the Lakers are gigantic. But I don't think there's going to be much doubling, at least not in the series opener of this one uh, way the hell down the line. That's not until Friday. I don't think there's going to be much doubling for the Lakers. I think they're going to play this thing straight up. I'm sure they're looking at film over the next couple of days to figure out who should be where. You know, how do they, if they're... One of the reasons that they'll probably start with a two-center lineup is that if Jokic is dealing, if he's passing from the high key that allows the Lakers to have another big man near the bucket. Now, if that big man is dealing with Paul Millsap or whoever who might float towards the corner, uh, that guy can sag a little bit towards the key and still recover. Do the Nuggets want Paul Millsap just chucking corner threes? I guess if they're open, that's a possibility. But the Lakers have this opportunity here where, you know, for the Clippers and or the Jazz even, when Jokic is initiating the offense... You can't sag off of him because he'll shoot and he'll make it from, you know, 18, 19, 20, whatever, if he backs up, take a three-pointer. You can't leave him unguarded out there. So that draws a big man 15, 20 feet away from the bucket. And for the Jazz, I think Royce O'Neal was their largest man still on the floor at that point when Gobert was pulled away from the hoop. And for the Clippers, it was Kawhi who, you know, or Marcus Morris, those are not tiny dudes, but those are not Anthony Davis. Kawhi is a brilliant defender, but he's not six foot eleven with the wingspan of a pterodactyl. He has the hands of a t- of a dinosaur, or not a dinosaur. That's the opposite. As a he has these giant clown hands, but Kawhi is not. He was playing mostly small forward at that point, and so there wasn't a, a great deal of rim protection, and Denver was just picking him apart in the second half. I, okay, i got to get over to the Clippers' side. I can't hold off any longer. So okay, a massive congratulations to the Nuggets. They did what no one thought they could do, myself included. Uh, they earned every bit of this conference finals appearance, and they're not going to be an easy out. Any team that fights like that, you know, if you're the Lakers, I think you know you got to take this team seriously. Honestly, if the Nuggets had just blown out the Clippers in this series, I don't think, I think people would still be questioning them. I think the fact that they had to do it this way has bought them more credibility. Now, on the Clippers side, I legitimately don't know what to say. That is, that might be the worst meltdown I've ever seen. It really, and I'm trying to, I, 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 I wanted to stop myself before I got too hyperbolic, but I think that's the worst meltdown I've ever seen. Not because Denver's not a good team, but because the talent gap here was. Was so wild. I mean, this is this is like the Draymond kicking LeBron in the nuts situation, but, you know, without a team losing a player for a game. Also, LeBron was in that series, who was by far the best player in the NBA, and no one was close. Now at least people are close. I don't know if he's still the best player in the NBA anymore. Re- regardless, that's not the discussion point here. This is a series the Clippers should have won. They should have won it. And of course, the problem was the longer the series went, the worse it became for a Clippers team that one made pretty clear they didn't that at least some of these guys never really wanted to be there. Lou Williams being the prime example of that, a guy who was who came out publicly and was like, look, we took a vote. Not everybody wanted to go, but we decided that whatever the vote was, we were all in. Yeah, that's that's cool. That sounds like someone who's all in and then gets wings at a strip joint and gets himself quarantined. That sounds like a guy who's all in. I'm sorry. I mean, I, like, I'm not looking to pick on Lou Williams in particular. I'm going to go through a lot of names here. Um, and this is not picking on either. Montres Harrell was dealing with a horrible family tragedy. Lost someone that he was extraordinarily close to then had to re-quarantine, come back to the bubble. I bet you that dude didn't want to be there. I don't know if I can blame him. That's rough. Paul George said he was struggling with depression in the bubble, which, by the way, great that he was open about it, but also evidence, again, of another Clipper that really didn't want to be there. Who did? Who wanted to be in the bubble? Kawhi wanted to be there, I think, because this dude... You know, he set this whole operation up in L.A. to win a championship for the Clippers. Patrick Beverly, I think he pretty much just wants to be wherever he can play basketball and harass people. <laughs> Bug him on the court. Marcus Morris, who the hell knows? I mean, I don't know him. Zubots, who knows? By the way, if he's a Zubats, can we, can we stop with the Zubots superstar stuff? Six points, two rebounds in 14 minutes. Yeah, I mean he got owned by Jokic just like everybody else has so far. Um, so you know with this Clippers team, when life was easy, everything was fine. This is this is the horde of the the sort of like what does adversity do to your operation? The Clippers were perfectly fine all being in the bubble as long as they were just sort of happily ambling along. But then the Nuggets came back and socked them in the teeth. And it all crumbled. And it crumbled fast. And I just, I still can't wrap my head around it. But just looking at this one game, let's not even get started on the post-game comments yet. But this one game, how awful did Kawhi Leonard look from a health standpoint? That dude was cooked. Kawhi played 43 minutes, so you certainly can't question his heart. Took 22 shots and had 14 points. Six boards, six assists, two steals, and a block. He was not himself. He wasn't even 60% of himself in that game yesterday. And if that's the, the degenerative quad injury, that's rough. Because that basically means that without a crap ton of rest time during a postseason, you're not getting peak Kawhi Leonard. He was gassed. And it was ugly. It was an ugly gas. He was decent, by the way, in their game on Sunday, but he was already showing signs of slowing in that one. 25 points on 18 shots, shot 44% in that ball game, and it was like this downward hill for him. He was great in the game that they probably should have clinched the series way back on Friday the 11th. Kawhi had 36 points on 24 shots, 5 three-pointers. Maybe that's your marker. Maybe that's what we should be looking at. Is Kawhi hitting his three balls? Previous game, where Clippers won by 11. Kawhi had 30. 11 boards, 9 assists, 4 steals, 2 blocks, 2 three-pointers. And then you just kind of keep rolling forward. Still hit his three-pointers on Sunday, but, you know, two steals, one block. And then yesterday, just nothing left. I guess we could say he was just tired. It's possible, but look, Denver... Denver's played the most games of anyone in the bubble to that point. This was their 14th playoff game to get through two series, and they seem to be okay. Denver shot 49%. Made 15 of their 16 free throws. Clippers shot 38%. Dragged down by their superstars. Paul George, 4 for 16. He was tired. He was tired. So on top of the fact that the Clippers looked, frankly, a mess and like they didn't really want to be there the last couple of games, the post-game stuff might have been the worst of all. Mark Spears, who uh, writes for ESPN's The Undefeated and, you know, longtime senior NBA writer, you guys probably all follow him already, uh, came out with a report within like a few minutes of the game ending. That several, I'm quoting the tweet now, several Clippers were so fatigued during Game 7 against Denver that they struggled to play stints longer than three minutes and asked out of the game for a breather in the fourth quarter. That's what comes out? Right after your team completes the worst meltdown in playoff history? That's the story that comes out? Post-game comments. Lou Williams said he was pissed. That's the right reaction. That is the right reaction to getting wiped out like that. Lou Williams said, we are pissed. Paul George said, nah, it wasn't really championship or bust. It wasn't really championship or bust. We need more time together. Okay. All right, Paul. Even though the day he signed with the Clippers, articles were coming out with him quoted as saying, we feel like we want to go win a championship. That we are ready to be to win a championship now. And I get it. Dude had a messed up shoulder. Messed up leg. He wasn't 100%. Basically until this time off before the bubble. Kawhi is Kawhi. He's always going to be brilliant when he's load managed properly. They didn't have that many games where the entire starting lineup was together. Uh, Well, sorry you had a whole damn season that's why teams usually get better as a season goes along when they're putting a lot of new pieces together and you're going to blame it on you're going to blame it on chemistry in the uh in your 13th game of the playoffs after a regular season that ended up around 70 low 70s in games i know it was busted in the middle by a 4 month layoff i get it I get it, you know, but boy, if I'm the rest of the Clippers or even a Clipper fan, hearing Paul George after that loss say, "Well, you know, we need more time together," it wasn't really a championship robust kind of year. We're like, I'm satisfied with getting wiped out in the second round of the playoffs. I know. I hate doing this right now because I know I've already come on this podcast in the past and and ripped Paul George a bit because I think he's one of those guys that just has no feel. He has no idea how he comes off to the diehard fans of the NBA. I love that Kawhi Leonard was scheming to put this whole thing together. I detest the fact that Paul George single-handedly dismantled the Thunder... Who like a couple days earlier thought they were gonna be making a run at a championship. They're like, we got two superstars. I get it. Russell Westbrook, you know, he's never gonna lead a team to a championship as the number one guy, but they looked pretty damn good that previous year. Damian Lillard knocked him out, but they were a good team when Paul George was healthy. And then George was just like, all right, by the way, I know I signed this four-year deal. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and just peace out for the last three. <laughs> Or whatever it was, 2-2 two and two or 1-3. and three. I, don't, I don't remember the structure of his contract exactly, but he signed the Max. So that drove me nuts. He, he's asked out of two different teams now, and he ends up here. I mean, this is like... You can't have it both ways. That's what makes me so annoyed with this situation. This is a guy who wanted to, the the bill of goods that you're selling a fan base and now multiple fan bases is that, look, hey, Indiana, I like you guys, but I want to go to a place where I can win a championship. Ta-da, he lands in Oklahoma City with Russell Westbrook. Plays there for a year, signs a max contract. One year later, guys, OKC, okay, I'm sorry, this has been fun, but I want to go to a place where I can win a championship. How many times can you pull that crap? And then you get to a place, and then you say, we weren't really ready to win a championship yet. What were you doing? How can you say, I'm leaving this place, I'm blowing up a franchise, which, by the way, kudos to OKC for getting a lot of pieces back, and you know their rebuild won't take nearly as long because they have every first-round pick from the Clippers and Rockets for the next quarter century. But regardless... And by the way, they also can thank Chris Paul for keeping them relevant this year. That, that was a situation that should have turned OKC into a bottom feeder, but for Chris Paul's leadership. He should have obliterated that team with that move, because he asked out, and then they were sort of forced to trade Westbrook as well, because Westbrook and a bunch of young guys, that had no chance of working. Houston came calling. So OKC was forced to trade all of their superstars, And look, when healthy, Westbrook is a superstar, still. Even though he's not championship material, he's still a superstar basketball player. And so now, you've got this guy who has exploded, he's detonated two teams under the guise of going to a place where he can immediately play for a championship, gets that opportunity now, because I don't care what he says, the Clippers are a championship-built roster. Kawhi, who's won two they had Lou Will off the bench. They traded for Marcus Morris. This was a deep team whose only real hole was having a competent center. That's a championship-level roster. He gets there, says, we're ready to go win a championship, gets wiped out in a brutal meltdown by the Nuggets, and then says, we weren't really ready for a championship anyway. We didn't. This wasn't championship-robust for us. It's not a, not a big deal. He downplayed it. That's not what you want to hear from your guy. I'm not a Clippers fan, but for a moment there, I'm able to put myself in the shoes of Clipper Nation. And if I'm Clipper Nation, I am livid beside myself with that reaction. I know it's just a game. I get it. I get it. But when you're a diehard fan of that team... When you're a diehard fan of your team, if you're a diehard Clippers fan and you're one of your two superstars comes out after the most devastating loss you've had in five years and probably either the most or the second most devastating series you've ever had to live through and says, yeah, well, it wasn't really a championship. It, was, it wasn't championship championship for us. We, we, we don't. We don't feel that bad about this. We, we, we're, ready. we're ready to work harder next year. I'd lose my damn mind. I'm losing my damn mind and I don't even care about the team. Oh my goodness! All right, the other game yesterday. Sorry, I, ha- I, ha- I mean that that reaction just no feel at all, no feel at all. The internet is calling out Kawhi Leonard, dude, dude plays hurt. He needs his team to get him to a damn series win before seven games. almost feel a little bit bad for the guy, but not really. Miami beat Boston. That was our other lean yesterday. Was Miami catching a couple of points because to me, uh I you know, from a this is an overtime game by the way. 117-114. A hell of a finish. Game was basically a coin flip. And so, if you get a game that's a coin flip, you take the team with the points. I felt good about Miami pretty much for the entire ball game. Um both teams played pretty well actually in this one. Not many turnovers. Uh, free throws were a reasonable number. Boston hit more of theirs than Miami did. Uh, for whatever reason, Jimmy Butler missed a couple. We know Bam's always going to miss a couple of free throws. Butler was fine. Jay Crowder was very good. Goran Dragic was very good. On the other side, Marcus Smart was amazing. Kemba Walker was horrible. Again, Kemba's been bad. I think Boston, you could probably argue, could play a little bit better on the offensive side. Um, they could certainly play a little bit better on the defensive side. It, just sort of shaping up, looking at how this series might shape up. I felt good about Miami. I thought they had the right ideas. And as I watched the first quarter of that game, when when Boston got out to a a, a big early lead on a lot of jump shots, my thought was, you know, at some point, you're going to go through a little bit of a lull there and Miami's going to get right back into this ballgame. And sure enough, they did. And then Boston went up, and Miami went up, and it sort of went back and forth with these runs throughout the game. It was really evenly matched. Miami, 32 assists, Boston to 24. That might be the reason to continue looking at Miami. Although, you know, again, uh, Miami hit a bunch of tough shots too. Dragic hit a bunch of big ones. Crowder hitting five three-pointers was a big deal. But and I haven't dug into the advanced stats yet, and I will over the next day and a half before the next ball game. Um, but the eye test, Miami was getting the better looks in this game. They were getting the cleaner looks. Boston, you know, pull up threes, sidestep threes, fadeaways, stuff like that. There were a few dunks mixed in there, but not a ton on the Boston side. A lot of the points they got, they they ground them out. And you know, Marcus Smart hitting six three-pointers, that's not going to happen every game. Jay Crowder hitting five won't happen every game either, but a lot of his were open. More open, by the way, than Smart's. I don't don't care what the metrics show me on that one. You know, Smart's three-pointer might be considered open if he's sort of running into it into transition, but an open set three-pointer is one I'd rather have. And so that's why I liked Miami coming into it. I thought, look, I, I think they can keep Boston away from the rim for the most part, and if it's Boston taking jumpers, and Miami taking mostly jumpers, but a handful of easier shots. That's enough to get them over the hump for me. But, it ended up being about as tight as any game could be. Miami's played a lot of really close games. So has Boston in these playoffs. Uh, So I think they're a bit battle-tested in that regard. Also, game went way over the total. It went over prior to overtime as well. By only a little bit, but it still went over. Went over by like three or four points, I think, before OT. So... As you look towards the next ballgame, there's a lot pointing towards fewer points getting put on the board in that next ballgame. Boston's expected total was about 109. They hit 114. This is, again, including overtime. And Miami's expected total was 111, and they went to 117. So they eclipsed it by six. Boston eclipsed theirs by five. This game should have been about 11 points lower, even with with overtime. So it should have been about 220 instead of 231. And if you wipe all that out and you make that same, you sort of work that same approximation on regulation, you know, you can't take out the full 11 points. But some facsimile of that, this game actually should have gone under by a little bit. But for both teams keeping turnovers very low, both teams getting a bunch of free throws. Boston making a lot of their free throws in this game. That's what kept them close. Boston shot the ball not that great. I mean, they were fine hitting 15 three-pointers. Miami shot the ball really well. So I think that probably comes down a tiny bit. I think you see the pace come down a little bit. I don't think you, see, you take as many uh, walk-into Marcus Smart three-pointers as this game goes along. And I believe this game is setting itself up for us for some possible unders going forward. And a good indicator of that is despite this last game going to 231 in overtime, the total for game two is actually set right at the same number as the total for game one. So they feel like they got it right, the odds makers, and they probably did. And so that gives us a little bit of wiggle room there. But we'll talk about that more tomorrow when they play their next ballgame. Good win for Miami. They go up 1 0 in that series. No games tonight on the docket. But I will say this thank you to manscaped.com for their continued support here on the Fantasy NBA Today podcast and at HoopBall in general. Go to manscaped.com, use promo code HoopBall20, and get 20% off and free shipping on your Lawn Mower 3.0. Another team gone fishing. We are officially in the conference finals, and we'll talk more about them on tomorrow's podcast. I am Dan Baspers. This was Fantasy NBA Today, a HoopBall presentation. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. Enjoy your break from basketball for but one evening, and we'll talk about it again some more. Manana. So long.